Thanks for listening to the Shift Your Spirits podcast. I'm your host, Slade Robertson. For 11 years, I've been a professional intuitive and the author of the blog, Shift Your Spirits, where I try to write about spirituality with fewer hearts and flowers than most New Age blather. I also mentor emerging intuitives, psychics, and healers in a program called Automatic Intuition. Today, I'm sharing a conversation with a very cool friend of mine, Dr. Martha Jo Atkins, who has spent decades observing what happens when we die, both the mystical pre-death visions we've all heard about and the practical reality of a miraculous process she says most resembles birth. And of course, as always, there's an oracle segment at the end of the show. So be thinking about a question or a concern you have, hold it in your mind, and I'll come back on after the final links and credits and leave you with that extra message. Before I forget, thank you for all the well wishes about my health. I am finally shaking this weird little sinus monster who hung around for 15 days. I'm sleeping again with no medication in my system, which is such a blessing. And I hope I can get back to my fitness classes in the next week or so. I was in such a fog for so many days, I can barely hold my place in the novel I've been reading. I forget everything I read, and I have to back up at least a whole chapter. I was excited to watch the new season of The Crown, but it's very nuanced in its history and politics, and I didn't want to try to muddle my way through that. So instead, I decided to go to my happy place, which is Edwardian England. I started re-watching all of Downton Abbey just to sort of keep me company, and if I dozed off, I wouldn't miss anything important because I've watched it before, and Downton Abbey is like the television version of Chicken Soup for me. But I noticed something interesting this time watching that I wanted to point out to you guys. It's very random and sparse, just two times so far, and I haven't seen them repeat it Uh, in all the other seasons, but in season two, there are supernatural moments in the show, which almost kind of breaks with the genre. It's very straight historical fiction, but there are too many beats, just shots really, in one scene or chapter moment where Daisy the kitchen maid and Lady Mary feel the moment Matthew and William are hurt in an explosion in the Somme in France during World War I. Daisy says someone walked over her grave, and Mary gasps and drops a teacup on the floor. I was like, hmm, that's interesting. Do they do that throughout this entire series? I didn't remember noticing any of that when the show was originally airing. And no, they actually really don't do that a bunch. But again, in Season 2, Episode 9, Anna and Daisy are playing with a Ouija board, and it spells out, May They Be Happy with my love. Both the young women are kind of visibly freaked out, thinking the other one has purposefully moved the planchette, but they both claim, you know, that they haven't done it. So they release it as if they're kind of afraid of it. And the implication was that the spirit of Lavinia, Matthew Crawley's fiance who died from Spanish flu, is trying to communicate from the beyond to give her blessing for Lady Mary and Matthew to be together again. I just thought it was interesting. I was like, what? It was these little gothic fiction supernatural Easter eggs hidden in the show, and I kind of wish there were tons of these. I'm not finding others, though. But anyway, I thought you guys might delight in that as much as I did. 
I also want to make sure that you've heard about my new email reading service. In the past, I've periodically raised my rates and done fewer readings, but honestly, I don't think the readings should be more expensive than they are. I want to do readings for more people, not less and I want them to be more affordable for you. These readings are actually not new. When I first started out my practice, I offered email readings, but I soon evolved to doing them on the phone because I really like talking to you guys, and several years ago, I just simplified to doing phone readings only. I still had the email reading option in my shopping cart, so I just put it back on the website. So far, I am able to do readings for about five times the number of clients and at half the cost for you. If you haven't been to my readings page in the last few weeks, go and check it out and compare. In addition to being half the rate of phone readings, I'm offering a guaranteed three-day turnaround time. Actually, all the email readings I've done since I started offering them again have been completed in 24 hours or less. Just know, if you've wanted to get a reading from me in the past and you felt like it was out of reach financially or you needed an answer more quickly than my schedule typically allows, go to sladeroberson.com readings and see if this doesn't look like a better scenario for you. I'll try it out for a few months and see what happens. So far, it's working out really well for me time-wise, and the feedback has been incredibly positive. I also just added a new mastery level on Patreon, which includes all the bonuses of the other levels of support that you guys pledge, plus you get to download one of my courses for free each month. I'll rotate through offering a different featured course, kind of in the order I think they're best to do them. I've added up the numbers, and if you were to sign up to the mastery level and hang through the months to get all the courses and tutorials I offer, you would get everything for $50 less than just purchasing them from my website. Not to mention the other benefits and how much you would be supporting the podcast specifically. This month, I'm offering a free download of The Money Shift, which is a really great one to have for New Year's. It will go along fantastically with my upcoming New Year's interview with financial alchemist and money goddess Morgana Ray. So go check out the mastery level and download The Money Shift. If you'd like to edit your pledge level in Patreon up or down, I have a link in the show notes for that. It's pretty simple to do. To find out how you can become a patron, support my time in producing this show, and access all the extra bonus content, please go to patreon.com slash shiftyourspirits. And now, on to this week's show. What really happens when we die? What if we could think of pre-death visions as the natural, beautiful, mystical part of the dying process that they are? What if we could teach people what to say and how to interact with their family members at the end of life? And what if we could all learn to speak the language of the dying? Dr. Martha Jo Atkins researches and teaches about the language, movement, and visions most people experience at the end of life. She is the executive director of Abode Contemplative Care for the Dying in San Antonio, Texas. We talk a lot on this podcast about what happens after you die, what's going on on the other side of the veil. Martha Jo has dedicated her career to standing just on this side of the veil, making the transition better for others, observing the phenomena, 
and teaching us all how to better navigate the signposts of dying for our loved ones. So my name is Martha Jo Atkins. I am a death and dying educator, counselor, and presently I'm the executive director of Abode Contemplative Care for the Dying in San Antonio. We take care of people who are in the last three months of life and help them transition from here to there. And uh, it's a really pretty magical place. So I do private practice and that stuff and um, teach about uh, preparing for end of life, questions to ask yourself, things to talk to your family about, that kind of stuff. Big fun. Well, we'll, we'll get to the, <laughs> how you manage the fun of all of that in a minute. But I am curious to hear more about Abode Contemplative Care for the Dying. Would you talk a little bit more about that and, and maybe explain how is it different than other forms of hospice care? Yeah, so Abode was started by a guy named Edwin Sasek who studied at the Kubler-Ross Center back in the 80s, which was in uh, New Mexico. And Edwin learned about the monasteries in the 14th and 15th centuries where dying people, traveling people who were dying, would go to the monasteries and the, the men in the monasteries would give them the best of what they had. So the best food, the best mat, the, the best whatever they had to help them travel on their next journey. And Edwin had this dream of, of starting a place where there was a chair and a mat and a light bulb and somebody could sit with somebody who was dying and, and help them go. He didn't have a model for that. And some 20 years later, he met a, a classmate of his who had been at the Kubler-Ross Institute, too, who was running a nonprofit home in Michigan, I believe, where he was caring for dying people. And Edwin put together a group. He had a model. He has that kind of uh, energy that has invites people to follow. And a group of people put abode together. And it's, it's built on contemplative practices. So mostly about presence. So how do you, how do you bring your spiritual practices to bear in everyday life? And he invites people to do that in context in this place, in this community, helping people with their dying process. So we've got three people who come at a time. Uh, they're in the last three months. We go and visit them and make sure that this is the right place for them. All the people who are coming to us recognize that they're dying. They don't necessarily like it, but they understand that that's what's happening. And then we accompany them, walk alongside them as they're on their journey. Uh, right now, we're not charging a fee for that. I, I think that's going to be changing in the springtime just because uh, economics are the way they are and we need to be able to support ourselves. So we'll uh, charge something and also have financial aid for people. Edwin's dream was for this to be for people who couldn't pay and for us to, to be able to care for those people. And we still will do that and we will uh, care for other people who can pay and that will allow us to, to keep the cycle going of uh, helping people who need it. Mm, that sounds wonderful. It's it, yeah, it's a pretty it's 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 a pretty magical place. And the the question you asked was how it's different. It is not a hospice. We hospices hospices in our country. Um, it, it's a it's a benefit of insurance. It's a benefit of Medicare and Medicaid. And there's a a number of days that you can be on hospice. You get a doctor and a nurse and a social worker. A chaplain and an aide that will come to your home for 
short amounts of time, 30 minutes to a couple of hours, and care for you. And the rest of the time, your family or friends are the ones who care for you. And so we, we take care of those people who are in the gap. We don't get money from hospices uh, or from Medicare or from insurance. That money all goes to the hospices. The hospices refer someone to us, and we are simply a home, and we, we serve as extended family. So you guys fill in the gaps for someone who maybe doesn't have those family members present. Right. Somebody who's 90 and their spouse is 90 and they've been married for 70 years and mm-hmm. he can't he can't turn her and he doesn't understand what's happening. Or uh, recently we had a 26-year-old who didn't want to die at home, who had a 4-year-old and an uh, 8-month-old and was worried about her mother. So we mm. had at one point in the room, there were four generations in this room helping this woman say goodbye to this life. And we got to be a part of all that and facilitate some some opportunities for the goodbye saying there. So I'm sure tons of people must ask you about, you know, the sadness or the depression, the depression that goes along with this environment. I'm, I'm sure yeah. you, I'm sure you have to see that differently in order to manage all that. So talk to me about the emotional part of doing this work. So I, I, along with the people I work with, my colleagues and I feel called to this and, and it is very much a soul calling and it very much is, um, it's a place we want to be and it's a place where we find energy and yes, there are moments of sadness. And as we do the work, we learn how to carry the sadness differently and carry the work differently. So, you know, when I, when I first started doing death and dying work, I was in my twenties and I took everything home and was sad about everything. And the way I saw death and dying in my twenties is very different than I see it now. It, it, now it is a transition. Somebody's going to their next place um, there, there is a, a sweetness to it. There is a, um, oh, there's an ineffability to it. There, there's world words, words fail me sometimes to, mm-hmm. to talk about how, how beautiful it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, there's not a lot of bullshit. I mean, I, I think that's the other thing I really, really love. People who are dying don't have time to, um, pretend and so the conversations are real. And for those of us who love those kind of conversations, um, this is just, it's a beautiful, beautiful place to be. And uh, this, the sadness is, it's almost secondary. In fact, it is secondary. It's, it's, the, it's the opportunity to be with somebody in a very real presence. And the veil is thin, and we get to experience magic sometimes, and... Um, sometimes it's just life that's hard, but we get to do it together and it's, it's good. How did this specific calling find you? Uh, Was there like a turning point that led you down this path? Was there, um, a loved one that, that passed that brought you into this experience? Yeah. Yeah. My brother Jim died when I was 23. He, he was 37 and it was one of those phone calls in the middle of the night, and I heard my mother make a sound that I'd not ever heard her make before, and I knew something was terribly wrong. And we, as a family, began navigating and negotiating grief and what it looked like and what it felt like and what it sounded like. And, um, and it was hard. It was really hard. He was the, the oldest and much loved, and we had to find our way. And one of the things I did was go back to school 
uh, I wrote a paper about starting a children's. We we had to the the task was to write a write a paper about starting a children's service in San Antonio that didn't exist. So I wrote about starting a children's bereavement center, and my professor encouraged me to follow up on that. So I did. I started this nonprofit and ran it for about. Um, seven years called the Children's Bereavement Center of South Texas. And in that process, I brought my family in and we were able to continue to have conversations about Jim and about our own grief and what we needed. And then we got to hear stories from other people and how they were managing. And it became this back and forth of uh, healing and helping, which is the best way to live life. I think we, we, uh, we give and we get, and it's not all altruism. And I, I think for people who, who think that that, that is it, um, I, think, I think they're missing the goodness there because we get to receive too. So we, we as a family did that and um, became closer as, as families can in those situations sometimes, and ours did. And then my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer, and she had... Uh, deathbed visions. She saw my brother. She saw her parents and her grandparents as she was dying. And I I had talked to her about that that could happen. And we had some really meaningful conversations around that. And then that parlayed into more conversations. And then as my dad got sick um, more and more, and I ended up doing my my dissertation work for my PhD on uh, deathbed phenomenon. And it's been uh, it's been pretty great. Well, you know, the reason why I wanted to have you on the show is because there is a magical component to mm-hmm. to all this. And that's that's how you and I know each other. And that's the thing mm-hmm. that we connected around. And so, I mean, of course, the most important thing, you know, I want to get to kind of some of the, the magical stories and the mysticism around all this. Um, so, I mean, what happens when we die? <laughs> There's There is a... From, from my vantage point, there is a trajectory of experiences. And the way I envision it now is, is like a cylinder. And we get on the outside of the cylinder and then we're pulled in and in and in until you get to the center of it and you go up and out. I guess I, somebody saw my drawing and said, oh, it's kind of like birth. And I, I think it is. I think it's very much like birth. Uh, as when people come to us, they know they're dying. We know they're dying. And so... What I watch for, what I see are patterns and what I, the way I work is that when people come into our place, um, they're doing the work of dying. So, uh, sleep changes. One of the first things we see people's nights and days will get, get mixed up. Um, I heard a beautiful story this weekend about a little girl who probably Six, five or six years old, got sent home, immediately didn't go to sleep. And they were talking about giving her more pain medicine and they're going to give her sleep medicine. And finally somebody said, why don't we just ask her why she's not sleeping? And she said she was afraid she was going to die when she went to sleep and she wasn't sure how she was going to get to heaven. So some really smart person said, get her some angel wings. So they got her angel wings, put them on her and said, if you happen to die in your sleep, you'll just fly to heaven. You'll know exactly what to do. She slept from that night on. Oh, wow. I know. Isn't that a great story? Oh, gosh. That's Uh, wonderful. Adults do that, too. And we get so caught up in, you know, they're not sleeping. They need to be sleeping. It's very much a part of the 
the process. And yeah, sometimes you can give people medicine and get them resorted, but sometimes not. That's just part of what they need to do. We see people um, not want to be in their bed. They want to be another place. They need to be on the couch or they need to sleep in the chair. And it's, it's these little shifts that we watch for. Uh, and then there is the, the, the visions that begin to happen. And you'll see people look outside, like out the window, out into the yard. And um, I, I'm often asked if, if it's medication-related or disease-related. And I will tell you the visions happen with all kinds of diseases, medicated or not. And, and they're different for people, but they happen. And I, I let people make encourage people to make whatever meaning they need to make out of those. But as part of this trajectory of dying, the, the person will see people who I call friendlies outside. So they're not people they know. They may see a baseball game. They may hear people on the porch. Um, they may see somebody walking by. Um, sometimes they're people that are uh, darker skinned than them, which I always find fascinating. White people see black people all the time, which I love. And it's not a, it's not, there's not a fear there. It's just, oh, there's somebody out there. And then the, the dying person kind of comes back a little bit and they'll go, okay, but reality is there isn't really body, anybody out there. Am I going crazy? So part of what we do at Abode is normalize all of this, that these are things that happen and you may see people and you may dream about people and um, they're, they're here to help you, and this is part of the process. The visions eventually come inside, and eventually the friendlies become people they know. And eventually, the, if, if, you're, if you're in a bed and looking at the end of it and you see somebody standing down there, that's one kind of vision people have. And as they get farther into the process and as they move into the cylinder, closer into the cylinder, they'll begin to see people up midway around the room and then at the top of the room. And you'll, you'll um, see people reaching. Uh, there's a, there's a, a back-in-time experience where people are in a, oh, it's, uh, the guy who did Moody, Raymond Moody, talks about your life review. Mm. And dying people have that. You'll see them go back, um, try to uh, lasso a horse or... Um, in my dad's case, he, he would put his stole on, he was a minister and he would open his Bible and I knew exactly what he was doing. And other people would look at him and thought, what is, what is he, what is Noble doing? Like he's, he's back in Sunday school and further and further, further back people go. And then there's this reaching up as though they're reaching towards something. Um, the other thing that happens is this use of metaphors and the metaphors change as people are further into the, the trajectory of dying. And, and they're, it's real subtle. You may be with somebody for 12 hours and you may hear three of them or you may hear one of them. But they're indicators and they're indicators that people are, are a little bit further along in their journey. It's, um, I tell people they're not predictive. They are, uh, they are uh uh, signposts. They just, they show you a little bit where people are and help you know that they're in process and doing what they need to do. And I think that helps the people who are family members and friends to prepare their hearts maybe a little bit more too. Mm. You wrote a book, by the way, I want to mention called Signposts of Dying. 
And I'm sure that this is this is the type of thing that you describe and explain in, in that book, correct? Yeah, yeah. These are these are those kinds of things. Sure. The the pre death visions, as you call them, you mm-hmm. know, these we have these stories ingrained in our culture, and they're kind of part mm-hmm. of our lore. You know, books and TV always um, portray them. The uh, seeing of the loved one at the foot of the bed, the you know, mm-hmm. talking to people that we can't see. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the relatives that come to get you, you know, to take you on. How many of of those kind of pre-death visions are real patterns, you know, in the experience of the dying? Oh, I, I think everybody has them. I think we just see probably 70% of them. Mm. 70% of the people we see and the other people are... Uh, so far in their process that they're they're doing their own thing behind closed eyes mm-hmm. and, and I and I watch people you know like they're dreaming but they're not dreaming it's a it's a very different awayness that happens as people are in the bed and and they go away to another place and then they come back and then they go farther away and they come back for a little less time and it's and it's not as um, deep here as it was before um, you, you can, just the quality of the experience with the people in the room changes because they need to be in that other place. And uh, it's, it, it is trackable and it does happen with just about everybody I see. Wow. Yeah. So this may put you on the spot. I don't know. You can tell me if it does. But based on your observations, do you personally see compelling evidence that the soul is moving on beyond the physical body to another location? I I do think that now. Uh, And I I have hedged my bets on that for a long time, but I do. We we cared for a woman not long ago who was just, if if you can imagine heels dug in and hands out, she did not want to go because it just all she could do to to keep from dying and she was going to do it. And, um, wasn't eating. I bet she weighed 70 pounds when she finally died and she was angry and she spent most of her time angry. And then, uh, she was getting up from the commode in the bathroom. Somebody was helping her get up and she, her heart stopped. And, uh, one of the, the navigators are, are people who do the bedside work. We call them end of life navigators. And one of the navigators caught her and thought, Oh my gosh, this is it. She died. And then she came back. Her name was Anna. And she was a little softer and a little sweeter. And then she went away again. Four or five times she died and came back. And uh, one time, we were just talking about this last night, we gathered everybody around the bed and we were breathing with her because we thought this was it. And her eyes kind of opened and she looked around the room at all of us. And (laughs) she said, it's so beautiful. Can you... Can you hear the flowers? Can you see the colors? And just this uh, awe of this landscape that she was seeing. And mm. and she, it, it wasn't crazy talk. It wasn't, um, I don't know, it, it just, it, it was, it was a continued preparation for whatever it was she needed to do. And she got to the end of all that and she looked around and said, can we have coffee? Like, oh my God, yes, we can have coffee. So we made coffee and we all had coffee together. And she ended up dying a couple days later. She wanted selfies that night. Mm. Her Part of her process was shifting this anger into an opening for her. 
And not everybody does that. Lots of people do. And um, there's a there's a feeling to it. There's a texture to it. There's um, um, it, there's an energy, and the energy in the room shifts. And and I do I I do think there's there's something else. I do. You said that your attitude had shifted from the time you were, say, in your 20s doing this work yeah. to, to who you are now doing this work. And so yeah. is that the direction that you've shifted in? Has it allowed you to maybe relax or feel more peaceful in some way? Yeah, I think that's a beautiful way to say it. Yes. You know, I I helped care for my first um, human who died was an infant and being in a hospital setting and the the medicalness of all of that and the, 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 the fast moving people and the medical language. And there, there wasn't much pause for honoring the, the spirit of that child. The mentor I had in that moment happily called me over, had me put my hand on the baby. She put her hand on the baby and she, she looked at me and she said, sometimes they forget they had done a code on this kid. And when they finished, everybody just ran out of the room and so this woman paused for a minute and wanted me to pause for a minute and a minute. And I've never forgotten that. And, and as I have continued to care for people from my twenties to now, um, that piece of the dying process has gotten stronger and more rooted in me. And that's primarily how we work with people at abode. It's not the medical. We don't have IVs. We don't take blood pressures. It's, it's not about any of that. It's about accompanying people. And, and I like that much better. And it feels, uh, as, as you say, it's more relaxed and more peaceful and, um, it, it just, it just works better for me. Mm. <laughs> a little over a year ago, my mother found her companion her, of 20 years on the floor of his bathroom and he had collapsed, probably had had a heart attack. And after yeah. she called 911, as she was waiting for the ambulance, she, you know, sort of held his head in her lap and she talked to him as he died. And mm -hmm. she says, you know, that she feels like he knew that she was there and could hear him. And before yep. speaking to you today, I was talking to her and I was, I, you know, sometimes I'll tell her about people that I'm interviewing or whatever. And I told her a little bit about you and why I was excited to have you on the show. And then I was preparing, you know, questions and everything. And she said, ask her if they can hear us. Mm -hmm. um, she really wants to know if, 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 if they can hear us, you know, as they're going. Yeah, I, I thousand percent believe they can. And I thousand percent believe the conversations we have in the room in front of them can help or hinder. So mm. uh, uh, if we, uh, we had a guy with us a couple weeks ago who wanted to make sure his wife was cared for. They'd been married for 55 or 57 years. And so I purposefully started a conversation with the children about how they were going to care for their mother and then purposely started a conversation with the mother about how she was going to be cared for by the children. So he could hear all that. And he died later that night, did the same thing with a, um, another couple who had been married for a long, long time. And she was, um, 87 and hadn't decided where she was going to live. And I started asking her questions in front of him. And every once in a while I'd, I'd holler, did you hear that? Did you hear that? You know, he hadn't been talking for a couple of days 
and somebody probably would walk in and think I was nuts that he couldn't hear all that. And we surely have had doctors come in and say, you know, they're not in their bodies. They can't hear. I don't believe that at all. I, I believe the, the people who are, who are dying, um, by and large, make a decision when they're going to go. They pick the moment they, if they can, they, they decide who's going to be in the room or not. And I have seen it again and again and again, waiting till that very last person pulls up in the parking lot and they walk in the door and they're gone a minute later, mm. or they wait till somebody goes to the bathroom or goes to the kitchen, which is 500 yards away. And they go and come back and the person's gone by the time they get back. Mm. It, it's, it's, um, it's energy. It's energy and what kind of energy they want or need in the room and who they want or need in the room and who they, who they want to protect or not, mm-hmm. who, 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 who can hold the space for them. Um, the, the 26-year-old died of colon cancer. The day her mother got a colonoscopy was the day the woman chose to die. And she, um, you know, we, we called her mother that morning and her mother was all dopey and couldn't drive over. And there was another woman at our place who had connected really, really well with Ty and very much a mother figure. And Ty was restless and you know, we, you medicate as much as you can medicate and sometimes there's still a restlessness. And as soon as that woman walked in and started stroking her brow, that child calmed. It was amazing. And very soon after that, she died. Mm-hmm. She, she didn't want her mama there. Her, yeah. her mama was taking care of her babies, and her mama was taking care of herself, and very headstrong, oh, neat, neat, neat woman. But I, I'm, yes, tell your mother yes, they can hear, and mm-hmm. how kind of her to offer that reassurance to her person as he was leaving. Yeah. It's well, a good thing. I, I think that's one of my biggest takeaways from this conversation is the idea of um, we hear that so much that they're hanging on and that they don't want to let go because they're anxious about things that they're leaving unsettled. And to actually um, s- to settle that in their presence so mm-hmm. that they can overhear it or that mm-hmm. they can just feel Um, Mm -hmm. on some level that some of those things that they're anxious about are being taken care of. Mm -hmm. I will remember that. I will Mm -hmm. remember that. And and that will change how I handle that kind of situation for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing I really love to ask people on the show is what do you think is missing from the conversation about dying? Hmm. What a great question. Um, We're, we're at a really tenuous point in our American history about how we are going to care for our, our dying in the, in the coming years. There are 10,000 baby boomers a day turning 65, and in the next 15 years, we're going to have a plethora of people who are sick and um, need help. And the way we operate now, we're mostly medical and a little bit holistic. And I think what's missing um, is how we were 50 years ago, but we need to innovate and re-engineer that, not 50 years, probably 75 years ago, when people died at home and we knew what to do. And we knew when somebody was dying that it was okay to let them go. And we knew how to sit and be present and hold space. That doesn't happen so much anymore because people get sick, they go to the hospital, we send them to rehab, and then they get sent to hospice. There's a there's a missing 
link of uh, how to be present with somebody. And I, I think that's a, a vital conversation we need to start having again. Hmm. What If you could change something, what would you change about end-of-life care? Um, I would... I would enhance palliative care in our country. Palliative care is is um, palliative care and hospice care often get lumped together and they're different. And palliative care is about the allevi- alleviating suffering. And if we could get more people who have chronic illnesses with palliative care people earlier, I believe that would help the way people die and um, help them die better because we would be talking sooner rather than later um, and waiting, waiting till that crisis happens in the hospital or, um, you know, I, however it happens. Somebody falls down and hits their head and do we put them on a ventilator for the rest of the life or do we let them go? Yes. And what have, they, what have they said? What, and, and having those conversations as a family or having them with your chosen family, having them with your friends about what you really want and, and bringing in the people who are willing to stand toe-to-toe with, the so-called experts, many of them are, I say so-called because um, they're not experts on you. You are an expert on you, and you need to let the people around you know what you want so you can express those or they can express those wishes when you need them expressed. Hmm. And well, in addition to your book, Signposts of Dying, is there any other resources that you would recommend for someone to go check out? Yeah, there's a, a really beautiful book by... Frank Ostasteski, who is a um, Buddhist who started Zen Hospice in San Francisco. And the book is called The Five Invitations. And it's, it's I think there's, there's words after that, but you'll be able to find it with that. Really beautiful book about dying and dying well. Um, beautiful stories. Um, what else would I recommend? Um, there's a, there's a, uh, beautiful book called when breath becomes air, which is about a, a surgeon who finishes medical school and then finds out he's got cancer and how he grapples with that and how his family grapples with that. It's a really beautiful book as well. Hmm. I'll think about some, some yeah. others. I was going to say, I kind of put you on the spot with that question, but absolutely. You can send me some things after mm-hmm. the fact. I'm sure yeah. as soon as we hang up, you're going to be like, Oh, I should have oh, said oh, yeah. this. Um, five more things. So yeah. everyone can check the show notes and we'll have, um, recommended, you know, resource links from you. I wanted to, to throw in one and it just kind of came to me, but the novelist Isabel Allende, um, who wrote house of the spirits and, mm-hmm. um, a mm-hmm. lot of fiction. She's I think Colombian. Um, she wrote a memoir called Paula, that is about the death of her daughter from cancer at a, at a really young age, like in her early 20s. Mm-hmm. And um, she talks about, uh, I know it sounds, you know, all this stuff sounds depressing, yet when you read it, it's such a beautiful, um, reverent uh, articulation of the experience. And I remember, you know, her talking about what it means the honor of being present when someone comes into the world and when yep. they leave it. Yeah. Um, yep. And uh, it was, um, it, it gives me chills thinking about it. So if there's anybody, yep. especially who has lost someone recently and they're looking for something to kind of 
talk them through the beauty of that. Um, I, I definitely recommend that book and I'm going to stick that in the show notes too. Um, yeah, that's a good one. What's, uh, what's next for you? What's on your horizon? You know, the next thing for me, I'm going to start teaching people who, who want to engage more in death and dying work. I, I, Really, the, the the way we're set up right now in this country to care for our dying is not going to be sustainable in 15 years. So part of what I want to do is start to teach people. There's a, a number of folks who are doing doula training, which is, is from the birth doula movement, and they've trans, transferred that to dying, and there are many, many similarities. Um, so I'm going to start doing that and doing some apprenticeship work at Abode, bringing people to Abode so they can be with our people and see that they are people first and dying second and, um, you know, think about their own life and ways to live meaningfully. Cause I think at the end of the day, it's, we're, we're all going to die and how are we living now? How do we want to live? So helping people investigate that and move into, to more of that. And, and, you know, I want to do the same. That's a big job and I'm glad you're doing it. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what? Somebody may hear this and and that may, um, that may speak to them and and Mm -hmm. they may may be called to do that, uh, because of your conversation. And Martha Joe, it's been really wonderful capturing your perspective on something, you know, we talk so much about the veil and on this show, we, Mm -hmm. we are often on the other side of it. And so to, to get to capture your impressions from the side where you're at the, the sort of threshold, um, Mm -hmm. is, is really cool. And, um, tell everyone where they can go to find you if they want to read more about you. So I have my, my personal website is, is Martha Atkins, A-T-K-I-N-S.com. And then Abode's website is Abode, A-B-O-D-E, home, H-O-M-E, dot org. And you can find out all kinds of stuff at both of those places. Wonderful. That was fantastic, Martha Joe. Thank you for coming on Thank the show. Thank you. Thank you. You've got such a radio voice. It's awesome. Mine is? Yes, it is. It's brilliant. <laughs> oh, that's sweet. Oh, <laughs> uh, thank you. That'll be cute. It's <laughs> a good way to end it. Good. Thanks again for listening to the Shift Your Spirits podcast. For show notes, links, transcripts, and all the past episodes, please visit shiftyourspirits.com. You can subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher or whatever app you use to access podcasts. If you'd like to get an intuitive reading with me or download a free ebook and meditation to help you connect with your guides, please go to sladeroberson.com. And if you're interested in my professional intuitive training program, you can start the course for free by downloading the attunement at automaticintuition.com. Before I go, I promise to leave you a message and answer to a question or concern you may have. So take a moment to think about that. Hold it in your mind or speak it out loud. I'll pause for just a few seconds right now. This is a bright moment of happy optimism. You will notice other signs and synchronicities that are supporting your dreams. Have hope and courage and know that your dreams coming true really could be as easy as simply acting on them. Especially if your ideas will serve the greater good in some way, then by all means put some energy into making them happen. If you're in the dark about what you should be doing right now or unsure of how to read what's happening all around you, 
you're about to have some light shed on your world. You will soon see, and then you'll know, and then you can move forward. And I'll talk to you later.